I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This week on Commons People, Boris breaks his manifesto promises. Well, it shows that we have abandoned um, our commitment to being a party of low taxes. That's obviously, that's what that shows. And what does Keir Starmer need to do at Labour conference? So it's only three o'clock in the afternoon and here in Ipswich we've talked to so many people um, about our ideas, what matters to them and everybody is buzzing with things they want to tell me. It's absolutely fantastic. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast. I'm Ned Simons, your host. I'm joined by Paul Wall. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ned. And our new deputy political editor, Sophia Slay. Hey, Sophia. Hi, Ned. And our guest this week is Angela Smith, Labour's leader in the Lords. Hi, Angela. Hi, Ned. (laughs) (laughs) So um, this week, Boris Johnson announced a manifesto-breaking tax rise as he finally unveiled his plan to fund social care. The Tory rebellion melted away. But here's a clip of one backbencher who did vote against the plan, Chris Choke, explaining what he doesn't like about it. These are the budgets since 1975 and the tax take. Yes. And that's what happened yesterday. Yes. What does that line there say about the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson? Well, it shows that we have abandoned um, our commitment to being a party of low taxes. That's obviously, that's what that shows. Why should people vote for you who believe in low taxes? Well, 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 quite. And that's why um, a a number of us uh, are voting against the government in the hope that more of our colleagues will have uh, the, the, the guts, frankly, to realise that if they don't oppose these enormous tax increases, then the Conservative Party is finished. How many of your colleagues, do you think, if I lash them to a polygraph, actually agree with you, even if they're voting with the government tonight? Oh, I think almost all of them do. Doesn't uh, it tell us the Conservative Party is in some awful crisis, doesn't know who oh, it is, oh, an identity a, crisis. Oh, it certainly tells us that, yes. It certainly tells us we're in an identity crisis. Paul, despite Chope's complaints, politically, will the Prime Minister be happy with how the plan was received? Well, it depends what, which audience you're talking about and where it's landed. I mean, the papers hated it, lots of them, let's be honest, particularly the Tory press. The Telegraph loathed it, started calling him a Cobalt Corbyn, which is uh, quite a nice, neat way of saying blue Labour. You know, that's his own paper. The Sun, for a very different reason, because it's got a lot of low earners who are readers, basically didn't like it because it was a tax on, on low earners and felt unfair. There's a whole separate story about the way the Sun treats its readers. And particularly, you'll see, actually, we can talk about this later, maybe, that universal credit, there's so many stories on universal credit in the Sun because a lot of Sun readers are in low paid work and they are very exercised about universal credit cuts. That's another issue. Other audiences, business hated it. They thought it was a tax on jobs, and the Federation of Small Business said it could be 50,000 jobs that could go. Independent experts were a bit more nuanced. I mean, Andrew Dilnot, whose plan on which this was largely based, largely liked it because, like many others in the sector, he thought at least the government's starting to do something that no government has really properly managed to do. So some people were sort of giving them a bit of credit, certainly for at least grasping this thing. 
Then you had the Curse Sept who really didn't like it because they weren't getting enough money quickly enough. And they're having to wait until 23 until they get any serious funds. And then when it comes to the MPs, obviously, I mean, most of those Tory MPs, when they were voting for it, you know, they looked like they were chewing wasps. They were really unhappy. But as low tax Tories, they felt they had to suck it up because it was all about the NHS. So amongst the MPs, certainly it didn't go down well, but they had to do what they did. Then finally, the, the real audience is the public. And the polls have been quite interesting. You know, originally, there were a few polls suggesting actually this was quite quite popular before it came out, like the day before there was a YouGov poll showing NI rise because people associated with the NHS rather than normal tax, they were overall in favour by a decent margin. Then it came out and actually there was a narrow poll against this proposal, I think 44 to 43. And then today there's been another one which suggests it's slightly gone the other way, narrow support for it. So it's not a done deal. And I think Johnson will know it's not a done deal. He knows that there's a lot of holes still to fill. And, you know, all the promises about social care, very few people trust him, never mind having broken the manifesto pledge. He's not sure whether even the pledge about social care, not selling your home is actually real. So it's landed in different ways in different audiences. Overall, I think politically, what was very interesting, it was a, it felt like a budget, it felt like more than a budget. It felt like a, politically a really big day because if a Tory creating a brand new tax and no matter everything else, that is something we, in my lifetime as a reporter in Parliament, I've not seen before. It's interesting you mentioned kind of all the kind of critics of it. And Angela, the Prime Minister seemed, he seemed quite jolly in the chamber though when he unveiled it. Is Labour struggling somehow to kind of land blows on the issue, despite, as Paul just listed, kind of all the critics of the plan? I think time will tell for that one. One thing about this Prime Minister is he has the capacity to sound very jolly most of the time, and most of us don't understand why. I thought it was typical Johnson yesterday. There is a tendency when Johnson does this sort of great hyperbole and how wonderful it is and over-exaggerates that things fall apart later. I think it's courageous for a Tory Prime Minister talk about this level of public spending. But I think the big danger he's got is where the money is coming from. And as Paul said, you know, it's some of the poorest being hit who will benefit the least from this. But the other point is there's no real plan with it. You know, even just a few months ago, when ministers were asked, when were we going to see the white paper on social care, integrating it with health, how it will work? We've been told, oh, sometime later, basically. And it just seems to me, and the one thing when I spoke on this today in the House of Lords and I said, wouldn't it have been better to have had the white paper and a plan, get people together and engage with it and try and come up with something in a time limited way and then move forward. And around the house, there was a huge cheer for that, real support for it. So I think a lot of Tories went through the lobbies with gritted teeth last night thinking, well, perhaps it will work, maybe it won't. But there's not great enthusiasm when you've got you're taking the money, but you're not even guaranteeing that within the next three years the money's going to go to social care. And the health minister says he's not sure it's going to fix the health service either. Bit of a mix-up. So, Angela, I just want to check with you. What is it the position procedurally of the Lords now? Because this is a ways and means motion, which for most listeners will have no idea what that means. But it basically <laughs> means it's, it's, it's sort of paves the way for a financial bill to sort of approve this spending or this tax rise. Does that mean that the Lords feel a bit slightly inhibited from opposing it, or even though it was never in the manifesto, or in fact it was actually it's a breach of a manifesto? We don't get to vote on this because it's a yeah. money resolution type thing. We, we don't vote on the actual funding of it. So that's not like the budget. It's yeah. down to the MPs. And this goes back, as you all know from your history, some time now that MPs have the sole say on financial yeah. matters. 
I think the biggest concerns in the laws wasn't the amount of money. I didn't hear anybody in the statement today say it's too much money. What we did hear was, A, where the money's coming from, and does it keep the promises, and is it going to work? And there was a real sense from across the House of all parties, social care needs that support urgently. Saying to people in three years' time, there'll be some help for social care, wasn't working out. There was no clarity about how local government fits into all this. And they're at the front line providing social care as well. And this thing about the previous promise, nobody will have to sell their home. Well, that's not really true, is it? And I said to the, you know, the leader of the house today, can you confirm that is still the case? Because I can't work out how it is with an £86,000 cap. And obviously didn't answer the question because it can't be answered in the positive. So I think the laws will be slightly different. The one thing we'll be keen on is to keep pressing for some kind of strategy or policy and radical reform of social care. If you think of the things you could do, one of the things we were doing as a Labour government, just told left office, was building more what you call lifetime homes. And that helps people stay in their own homes if they want to. There's so many people now that have to leave their homes when they'd want to because the facilities aren't there to support them. How do we use technology? How do we do adaptations? You can be some really radical things that don't necessarily cost money, but make the experience of somebody who needs care so much better. And those things seem to be pushed onto the back burner. I would have thought, well, you do that first and then look at the money. I don't know if you saw that Andy Burnham today on Sky was saying that Labour should come up with its own plan by conference, kind of a better alternative to the government. I mean, do do you agree with that? Do you think the party needs to um, present its own plan sooner rather than later? It depends what you mean by plan. If you want to know, have we got ideas of how to do this better? Yes, of course we have. And we're bringing that, we've been discussing it, and there's some good practice as well. Have we got an overarching thing to say, here you are, ready, don't do this, do this now? No, because what we would do is completely do this very differently to the government. I've heard Liz Kendall, you heard people in the House of Commons last night saying the kinds of things we would do to reform social care. But you have to engage with, A, the people who are using it, I think people of working age who are disabled, people who are carers themselves. And when you've got that and you get a proper plan, as we were expecting from the white paper and that debate, I would like to see really across community, cross politics, cross expertise and professions, some kind of consensus, because then it will be easier for everyone to move forward. But government doing it like this, well, we'll play hardball on the money and whack that through Parliament and we'll think about how we're going to spend it later. Seems to me to be a very unconservative way of doing things. Angela, what do you think Andy's playing up then? He knows he's done this job. He was health secretary. He knows you can't come up with a, a, I was a detailed plan. Fancy, <laughs> I mean, you, you can't come up with a detailed plan within two weeks just for party conference. That's not going to happen. So he knows that. So what's his yeah. game? He's just trying to sound a bit more, you know, leadership potential. I don't think so. I don't think he's going to play those games. But he will, you know, he will, it's what we're all saying. You have the plan first and then the money. So he knows it won't be a fully formed plan in that time. But he also knows there's lots of things that have been discussed. There's lots of things that feed into that plan that will make up a plan. Now, I was in those meetings with Andy all those years ago when he was our secretary. I know how the Tories criticised anything we were trying to do. Yeah. I think our criticisms now are a bit different and it has to be get the plan, get the reform in place, work out how to do it, and then provide the money. But I just don't understand, you know, two years ago, Boris Johnson stood down the street and said, yes, we'll have an oven-ready plan. What we've got is an oven-ready tax plan. 
Just to kind of jump back to the kind of the Tory rebels that didn't really happen. I mean, Sophia, despite the obvious unhappiness, why do you think so few of them actually voted against the government? It is amazing, really, isn't it? I mean, you, you've got all these sort of proud, low-tax Tories who have basically voted for arguably a very unconservative tax rise. I think quite a few of them that were against this plan, and there were a lot of people against this plan in, in the Tory party. I think there was an element that they were kind of resigned to the idea that there isn't really a sort of credible alternative in the short term. And I'm sort of stressing the short term. That's the kind of key part, I think, to this. I think, you know, Boris Johnson was obviously on this charm offensive on the terrace the other night trying to charm MPs. I think that's definitely an element of it. At the end of the day, MPs don't want to rebel against their own party. Boris Johnson is still hugely popular. A lot of these MPs still owe their seats to him. So, you know, they're very, very loyal to him. And I think even though there's lots of, you know, a lot of Tory MPs actually did come up with some alternative ideas. But the problem with them is they're not really a quick solution that they are sort of long term. They need a lot of thought going into them, basically. What I did think was interesting, actually, as well, is one Tory MP who did abstain was Deanna Davison. And she's sort of seen as very much a sort of new star of that new generation of MPs. I thought she was sort of an interesting abstainer. It takes a bit of nerve as a newbie to abstain or something like that, doesn't it? It does. And I think also there's two things. One, one, this isn't a quick solution either. So people looking for a quick solution didn't find it in this. But one thing governments have to be aware of when they whip their MPs through lobbies, when there's reluctance, is they need to be aware that you can only do that so many times. If the government backtracks on this anyway, having forced its MPs to vote for it, or as it becomes evident there isn't a plan alongside the money or something goes wrong, those MPs will be very resentful of being put in the position of having to vote for something they weren't happy with. And that stores up longer-term problems for the government, both on this policy and generally. How much do we think there was kind of lots of rumours about an impending reshuffle? How much do we think that had any impact on how people voted? Let's get into the psyche of Tory MPs for that one. But uh, I wonder how many of them are sitting by their phones this morning. I know. A few of them have turned up very nicely dressed, apparently. <laughs> I had a haircut, but it didn't work. <laughs> I think you might not get the call, Angela. No, not by the phone. <laughs> right, so moving on to, I think, the Labour Party. Keir Starmer, uh, he spent the kind of summer on a bit of a trip around the country. Here's a clip of him in Ipswich you know, promoting his listening tour. So it's only three o'clock in the afternoon and here in Ipswich we've talked to so many people um, about our ideas, what matters to them and everybody is buzzing with things they want to tell me. It's absolutely fantastic. So Labour MPs and members are gathering in Brighton in person at the end of the month for the party's conference. Starmer has said he's going to use it to paint in quote primary colours what his agenda is and has been kind of an uneasy few months for him. Uh, perhaps a bit of dissatisfaction about how the party's performing. Um, Angela, at that conference, when, you know, if Kia does kind of present these primary colours, you know, what are they? What does that mean? What do you think the party's kind of top agenda items are going to be? I think for Kia, he's really looking forward to this conference because he's been leader for some time now. He's established as leader. He'll have never spoken to a live audience the size of the Party conference. Hmm. I don't think he's spoken to more than 30 people in a room yet. So that opportunity to set out your stall to people in a live live audience and on TV is something he's been looking forward to for some time. And it's a shame it's taken so long because of the pandemic. I think what you'll see is a, a sense of care, a sense of the prime minister he will be, 
and you'll see some flesh on the bones. Now, you're not going to get the details every jot and tittle of policy, but you're going to have a better idea of where the Labour Party is heading and what kind of government will be. And don't be under an illusion that he wants to be in government. It's interesting, when you're talking to people and you know, getting some feedback, there's a lot of people out there that have shifted back from saying, we don't like you, we hate you. And let's face it, 2019 was a pretty horrible experience when was out on the doorstep. It wasn't a great election to be campaigned on. A lot of those people now are saying, well, I'm listening, I want to hear this, I want to know what you're going to do. We've got permission to be heard from those people, but we've now got to give them a reason why they should vote Labour. And that's Keir's challenge at conference and one that, from my conversations with him, he's relishing. And there are particular things I think the party does need to do now in order to win the next election. Like if you, I know it's not often this easy, but are there kind of one or two you know, specific things that you think the party needs to kind of put more flesh on those bones, as it were? Of course. I think everyone knows that. I'm not going to start uh, giving you the examples now, but you'll, you'll see what conference. You're not going to get a preview just yet. Um, Damn. <laughs> it would have been lovely, wouldn't it? You know, you get a scoop and I get the sack. Um, <laughs> but, uh, there's a real sense I see within the shadow cabinet, particularly now we can meet together in the same room, which we haven't done much of since Keir's been leader, is you start to sort of hammer out those difficult issues, your priorities. Now, the Labour Party is never short of policies, of all the wonderful things we want to do. And you know, we are people who want to change the lives of people. We want to embrace life-changing policies. But let's be honest, you can have a list of those, but unless you say what your priorities are and how you're going to pay for them, no one's going to take them terribly seriously. We've been down that road before. So I think the challenge at conference is I'm serious. I can do this. This is how I'm going to do it. This is why I'm going to do it. And paint that picture, as he says, in primary colours. It won't be a, a sort of soft soap approach. I think it will be pretty hard hitting. And I think Keir's had this time was disappointing. It's been for him that he never gets to speak to an audience or get in amongst people. As he's been doing more of that, he's actually stepping up his pace as well. So I'm really looking forward to conference this year. And I haven't said that for a few years. Well, certainly not oh. publicly. Paul, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the kind of mood among Labour MPs is? Are they happy with how things are going? Or Well, it's interesting, actually. Coming back, what's really interesting this week is, I have to say, I love seeing people in person, love seeing politicians in person. And it's actually a real treat after a long, long time for all of us doing everything like this by Zoom. Angela, you know, is a few hundred yards away from me. We're having to do this for technical reasons. But um, uh, that what's interesting is that both parties feel energised just by being in the building, I feel. And it's really interesting what electricity that creates. For Labour MPs, obviously, there's a bit of nervousness that Johnson this week is trying to grab the centre ground. He's trying to, in some ways, in his own way, talking about higher spending, higher taxes. Some Labour MPs are a bit nervous about that. Some think it's a great opportunity for the Labour Party that, look, we, they're on our turf now. If they're admitting the principle that taxes have got to go up rather than spending cuts, rather than borrowing, then at least Labour thinks it's winning the argument there and actually can do its own progressive form of taxation. And I think I get the mood that people think there's an opportunity, but equally there's a bit of an unease. I mean, Keir Starmer didn't have a great PMQs. 
I know that was partly because, you know, Labour MPs are wearing masks and can't shout as loud as Tory MPs. But well, I, know that, I know that for a fact that, um, you know, people within the Labour Party this morning was discussing, well, we should be shouting louder. That's a point we do take on board. We've got to get behind our leader a bit more. Rachel Reeves, by contrast, she had a, a stormer in the chamber yesterday. It was extraordinary. And I know that Labour MPs have been really heartened sharing the WhatsApp of her video and that her attack lines on the government went down really well. That kind of punch, thanks to people like Shabana Mahmood and Conor McGinn, who do the morning meeting now, which Angela knows all about. You know, there's a morning meeting for Labour Party from the inner circle where they sort of get together what their attack lines for the day are. And the mood is, look, today, which Tory are we going to tear apart today? And, you know, it's old-fashioned. I saw it under New Labour a lot, and it was very That's effective. a bit crude way of putting it. Paul. But you know what I mean. <laughs> She's not denying As it. As we promote the Labour Party today, what's what's our agenda what's what's wants to make a, some noise about Paul do you pick up the same sense that I am that basically Labour MPs want more and they want to do more you mentioned it calls it an energy and it is isn't it very much so at the moment I thought yeah definitely and I think when they hear some kind of like Rachel Reeves had a series of very detailed attack lines they love that and also, not just the attack, they love the fact that you were showing a bit of leg at last on social care, for example, that you were fleshing out some of the details. So you were talking about stocks and shares and landlords and the kind of people and the kind of areas where you could do more taxation and more progressively than the Tories. And they like that, not just because Labour loves tax rise or anything like that, but because they're an answer and they can see under Rachel Reeves, just like you, Angela, you know, they've got this overwhelming sense that we've got to be trusted again with people's money. We won't even get a hearing about tax rises unless we reassure people we're not going to waste the money in spending. So that's why you've got Rachel Reeves talking about made in Britain, making more in Britain, attacking the government about cronyism on contracts. And I think all of that's interesting. But what will be interesting at conference, so that's the mood amongst Labour and Peace. I think there are, there are open to being buoyed up but when it comes to conference this will be really interesting because it'll be Keir Starmer's almost like his first chance to present himself to the public in many ways I think because it's not a relaunch as such but in the public size let's not forget a lot of people still don't know who he is Hmm. and seeing him on their telly for you know an extended period of time in front of a live audience I think and I know the people around him think that could really make a big difference how he handles the conference obviously he'll say a bit more about himself he'll say a lot more about anti-semitism you know his key priority and on the Sunday he'll hear about that I think there's some nonsense about nonsense I say nonsense because I don't think it's going to go very far about a vote not allowing the general secretary David Evans to take up his position I think that will be roundly defeated because the leadership have got the numbers and I'm not quite sure why the left are doing that because they will be defeated the key question I know I've talked to some people around Keir Starmer is what happens over Jerry Jeremy Corbyn in this conference. He's going to be there. He's a party member, but he's not got the whip. So he can turn up. He's got every right to turn up to fringe meetings. He will make making speeches. And I think his future is going to be interesting. He's got to make a cause whether or not he wants to be a Labour MP again. And I think the question to him will be, do you think you're going to win as an independent in Islington North if you don't accept the apology that's been required of you? The pressure will be on him a bit, but he could be on the Labour Party to sort of say, well, is he still one of us or not? And I think, and I talk to people around here, what happens if at some point during conference you hear a low rumble during Keir's speech, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, what does he say? And I know that they're thinking about this. They haven't got an answer yet. I mean, one answer might be Keir Starmer says, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, unfortunately, as much as you liked him, he lost two general elections. I want to win a general election. Now, that'd be quite a ballsy thing to say. I suspect it's not Keir's style. 
But I don't know. I mean, I do know they're considering it. What do you think he should say, Angela, if, he, if that doesn't happen? Oh, the ball's in Germany's court here. Sorry is the hardest word. I don't know why he just hasn't very early on. And it must get harder as longer it goes on to say, I got this badly wrong. What I should never have said that. I'm really sorry. I won't do it again, which is what other people would do. But Jeremy can be quite stubborn. I don't really get the sense that the Labour Party wants to look backwards. When you've lost elections as badly as we have, it's not just the losing of elections, MPs. You see what the Tories are doing. And you saw that huge great energy in the House of Commons. What the government is doing in terms of, you know, even on universal credit, for example, even their own analysis says this is catastrophic. They're going to you know, take more money off those people from national insurance. All those things bind Labour MPs together and bind the party together in wanting to win, not because we want to get... Joe Bloggs or somebody elected. It's because we want to do something different. Now, if people are seen to be disrupting that, I think the Labour Party members and the trade unions will not be happy about it. You know, there was always a core that loved Jeremy, whatever he does. There was always a core that hated him, whatever he did. And the bulk of members just want Labour leaders to succeed. Yeah. And if Jeremy you know, tries to damage conference in that way, I just think a lot of people who have supported him previously will be bitterly disappointed because that would be a very unlabor and in Labour Party terms, uncomradely thing to do. Yeah. I was going to ask you, Angela, I mean, obviously you won the totemic seat of Basildon and I know that there have been boundary changes since, but your election in, in 97 was a big change. That had been in 92, it's seen as the key seat. Is there any way in which Labour could ever win Basildon back, even under the new boundaries, or the seats around it? The more, I'm thinking more like Rob Halfon's seat in Harlow, the places that Labour used to win in Essex. What's the way of winning back that Essex Labour vote that seems to have gone wholesale to either the UKIP or to the Tories? I think you'll see something slightly differently. You might see that the demographics and boundaries have changed, that other seats become more marginal. Like I keep an eye on the South End seats, for example, these days that seem to be picking up more Labour votes. I think partly it's demographics, but you have to make an offer to people that they understand can make a difference to their lives. Now, that's not rocket science, but it's got to be honesty. And one of the things I've been picking up in Basildon, and I was back in Basildon last week, is this sort of sense of, does Labour talk for me anymore? And this comes back to Keir's challenge at the Labour Party conference. People aren't hostile to the Labour Party. They want the Labour Party to do well. And yet... They don't necessarily want to vote Labour, but they don't want to vote Labour for anyone else. They want Labour to do better so they can vote for the Labour Party. That would be a lot of voters in Basel. It might not be the whole Basel constituency because of how much different building, demographics and boundary changes. But I think you'll see those kind of Essex voters wanting Labour to offer them something they can vote for. I think we can do that, but it is going to be a challenge around the country. And I think we'll see... In 97, we won different seats than people anticipated. Naturally, we didn't win some of the ones we did anticipate. So we could always see those kind of things happening again. It's very difficult to judge. When you knock on doors and sometimes your support or your opposition is in the most unexpected places. And do you think things like antisocial behaviour, that kind of stuff, Keir hammering that away this summer, that will have an impact in Essex seats? It's one of the key issues that people talk about. You say Keir's listening. Part of that he's been listening in places like Ipswich and the Eastern Region, but he's also part of that listening is saying what he's about. It's not just absorbing what people are saying to him. It's a conversation, a dialogue. And that sort of often low level, but not always, antisocial behaviour, day in, day out, really gets people down. 
It can keep people locked in their homes. It makes people frightened to go out or they worry about their families. And also the general state of the place. You know, I was visiting my mum and dad in Basildon last week. And just walking around the corner, you're struck by broken paving stones, bollard pulled over, the grass hasn't been cut somewhere. All the potholes, gosh, are worse than they were in Sussex. But it's those kind of things about someone's daily life when they step outside the home, what they face. They're the kind of issues people are talking about. Yeah, um, and maybe the rundown high streets as well. It's all part of the same thing, isn't it? Very much so. So I think there's got to be an offer that makes a difference to people. Some of the things I think the government are talking about, they're so busy focused on red wall seats. They're forgetting that lots of seats in the southeast are actually struggling to get by. You've got families finding it really hard. And the government's saying, oh, we've got to deal with the red wall seats. We've got to address this and levelling up. Actually, this is a problem across the country that I don't think the government understands. Just briefly, Sophia, actually, because she's from Essex, well, what she thought about <laughs> what is the solution? What should Labour be saying to voters in Essex? I think talk crime. Um, I'm a little bit more cynical about it. I mean, I grew up, I'm Essex born and bred. I'm from Colchester. So just up the road from Ipswich and, you know, not too far from Basildon and stuff. I'm a little bit more cynical. My view, I always go on the sort of pub tests. And my feeling when I'm down the pub is a lot of ordinary working Essex folk don't have much of an affinity with the Labour Party nowadays, if, I, if I'm really, really honest. Do they have an affinity of anybody? We've just been doing a debate on standards in public life. My sense is that most people I talk to don't feel much affinity with politicians for stop. And that's a real challenge for across all the parties. There's definitely a void, but I think Boris Johnson has waltzed into that void to a certain extent. Working class voters in Essex, you know, for a long time in certain areas have for years been voting Tory. And part of me does wonder if Bassett Law is going to kind of become the new Basildon. You know, if you should be looking elsewhere rather than trying to focus on Essex. Previously, I remember sort of 92 and 87, people saying, no, we're never going to win these seats back again. And I think, right, well, they may not be the specific seats, they're still the same kinds of voters. And there was this huge shift because people trusted the offer believed that we would do what we said we would do. There was also, I think, the backdrop leading up to 97 was that the government was wearing thin with people. Boris Johnson is riding high now, but if he continues to be so sort of careless and sort of this off-the-cuff kind of approach that he takes to things, that let me give an answer that gets me through the moment, that may start to wear thin with some people. It remains to be seen, I don't know. It's one thing with a lot of his MPs, whether it still remains safe for the public, I don't know. Talking about answers to get you through the moment. So it's quiz time, everyone's favourite part of the podcast. It's about manifestos, given the Prime Minister's manifesto breaking week. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read you the name of a manifesto and I want you to each tell me who you think it is. So, you know, was it what Prime Minister, what party, what Right. So like the title of the manifesto. The title of the manifesto. Which are normally really mundane. The first one, Britain can be better. Paul, who do you think... That's oh it. my god, that sounds yeah, so lame. It's got it's got to be Ed Miliband, doesn't it? Okay, Paul says Ed Miliband. Uh, Angela, who do you reckon Britain can be better? Hmm. Yeah, I might go for Ed, but it, it's a very innocuous title. I'm okay. thinking it's because he said Britain can do better than this. That famous phrase. So that's what made me think of it. Yeah, it might be 1950s. <laughs> it's a bit of a theme for his conference speech, but I think it has been through the years as well. Yeah, Sophia, what do you reckon? I'm not sure, but I'd definitely put a tenor on it being a, a Labour manifesto. So it was Labour, it was Ed Miliband in 2015. <laughs> yes! Hey. yes, yes, yes. Well 
Okay, another one here. Ambitions for Britain. Ambitions for Britain. Is that sounds so boring? Is it Ted Heath in 1970? It's not Ted Heath, no. Theresa May? Not Theresa May. Mm. Is it a chance to be at a (laughs) It's a Labour one, isn't it? It is a Labour one. Okay, I'll tell you. I think what year it would have been, it was after we'd been in government, wasn't it? 2001? Yeah, Tony Blair, 2001. Well done, Angela. I'm impressed. I I was sure that was going to outfox everyone. Got there in the end. It took a little while, but I got there. Okay, how about this? Time for common sense. I think that might be the Tories in 2005. Close. 2001? Yeah, that's um, William Hague in 2001. Uh, That worked well, didn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll do one more to then put everyone out of the misery. Change that works for you. Christ. Um, is that the Labour Manifesto in 2019? No, no. That, change UK. <laughs> no, 2019 was it's time for a real change. Oh, God, yeah. That's, that's Labour really that works for you. Yes. Um, we've had Labour and Tories. So I'm going to put money on the Lib Dems for this one. And I'm just trying to think what year it could be. Because they've done that when they were in government. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Perhaps forget they were in government, but they would. They did have to fight an election when they were in government. That's good. So maybe, maybe it's their 2015 disaster. It's actually it is Lib Dem. It's actually the 2010 one. Ah, hey. ah, I think Andrew gets half a point for that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> there we go. There's I think she wins. Yes. <laughs> is there a prize? Yeah, the prize is honour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an honour. That's what you get. Okay, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Angela, for coming on. Thank you, people, for listening. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. We'll leave you now with Care Minister Helen Watley on LBC this morning, struggling to decide whether she thought Gavin Williamson was racist or incompetent. Williamson doesn't seem to be able to tell the difference between Maro Itoje and Marcus Rashford. Is he racist or incompetent? Um, you'll you'll forgive me for saying I again have probably seen no more of this than uh, what you have seen. Well, I what know more that he's, do you? He's, he's, he's mixed up two prominent black English black sportsmen. He's got them the wrong way round. I repeat my question: Is this through incompetence or racism, Minister? Uh, honestly, I, I I don't know. All I know is that Gavin. Has, so it could uh, be he's, racism. He's put, out his ex, he's put out his explanation, um, and there's there's really nothing more that I can say about it. So, so it could be racism. I, I, I can't believe for a moment that he is. I think that sounds highly unlikely. And I think, so he is incompetent. So it's incompetent. No, I think, that's, no, I, I think it's a false well, It's got to be one or the other, really, hasn't it? No, no, no. It's, it's not well, necessarily it one or the other. Oh, no, come no, no, on. No, no, no. You've given, you've given no. me a false choice that you're trying to put me in a trap to say that there's How one thing or the other. How dare you? As if I try and do that. All the years we've known uh, well, each other. As if a journalist would try and trap a politician. I don't accept the choice that you've offered me there. What I'll say is Gavin has said what's happened. There's not a lot more I can say. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.